There was once a time when I was uh, younger that I was like, I was super into professional wrestling. Um, my brother and I were absolutely obsessed. We would watch every Saturday morning. We would watch every Wednesday night. Uh, we, would, we, would, we had all the wrestling magazines. We, the ones that we didn't have, we checked out from the Hennepin County Library. We knew all of the latest wrestling gossip and, and the dish that was going on from there. We ordered every single pay-per-view event that there was uh, on the, the, the cable network. Uh, and, and best of all, we would go to the Target Center whenever the World Wrestling Federation would come to have a live event. And we would be sure that we would get there early because we would stand at the loading dock and wait to see all these professional wrestlers come to the stadium in their rented cars, many of whom they hardly even fit inside of. It was just super exciting. In fact, Pastor Dave and I have even wrestled around with the idea of forming a tag team called the Pastors of Disaster. <laughs> and so, maybe one day, right? Yeah. But uh, of all that excitement, there was nothing quite like the energy that was in the stadium when you were there at the Target Center during a live event. And just like boxing, uh, professional wrestling always built up the show. It would start off with sort of the freshmen, the rookies that were trying to get their career started. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. Uh, but then every match from there would grow in importance and it would grow in showmanship and, and, <laughs> and extravagance uh, leading up to what was the main event. And it was the main event the main event is why you bought your ticket. That was the match that you went to go see. This was Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant at WrestleMania 3. This was uh, the Ultimate Warrior versus the Macho Man, Randy Savage. I think I had a picture of them on there a second ago. This is Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield, which ended a little strange. But it was still a main event that everyone got excited for. And our text today uh, details a ticket of epic uh, proportions. It's a, it's a matchup for the heavyweight championship of deception and manipulation. Jacob, the trickster, is going to square off against Laban, the deceiver. Their battle, however, it's not going to be played out in a squared circle. Rather, it's going to be played out on a rural property in Padam Aram. The stakes are much higher than, than the Vegas spread. The stakes are the future of God's people, who are uh, Jacob's children, who are trying to escape the tyranny of living under, Jake, uh, under Laban's rule. Laban, of course, is the father of, of Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. And what we'll learn through this retelling of history is that both of these men are schemers and cheats. Both of them are liars and, and manipulators. However, it is not their efforts that controls the history of what happens here. But it's the Lord's will. And because our fate, our destiny, is ultimately up to the plans of the Lord... We need to cease our manipulative efforts and we need to forsake those things that we trust in and rather live solely for the glory of God. 
So there's three things that I want us to look at today. The first thing is, is that we need to leave it up to God. Leave it up to God. Uh, to God. And, and what do I mean when I say leave it up to God? I mean that we need to leave our situations. We need to leave our, our cares. We need to leave our futures, our burdens, our anxieties, our concerns. We need to give them over to the sovereign hands of God. It doesn't mean that we just sit back and let things fall into place, but it does mean that we need to cease trying to get results based on our own ingenuity and our own schemes or our own manipulations or our own illegitimate means to get what we believe God's will is for us. If we are to leave our, uh, we are to leave rather our, our plans and our lives into the providence of God. This passage today is very long and it's almost impossible to go through every uh, every small detail here without taking a couple hours. We're not going to go a couple hours here. So we're only going to highlight this. We're going to look at the highlight reel of this epic duel. But as an overarching principle, what we need to see here is the futile attempts of two master manipulators to get their way. Now to set the scene, remember that Jacob here had fled his home because his mother convinced him to deceive his blind and ailing father to take the blessings away from his brother who had the rightful inheritance, who had the rightful blessings, and give it to him. When his brother found out about his scheming and his lying and his theft, his brother threatened to murder him. And so his mother, who devised this whole plan, told him to leave the house and go to her brother Laban in Padan Aram, otherwise known as Haran, in order to, to, to be safe. Uh, Jacob uh, had uh, his father Isaac told him to go to this same land to find a wife from the people of Laban. And he does. He, he falls in love with Rachel, who is, the, who is the younger and much more attractive daughter of Laban in contrast to the older, more homely Leah. But Jacob must have inherited his mother's, his, his uh, manipulative skills from his mother's side. Because after working seven years to marry Rachel, his, uh, Laban, his uncle, doesn't give him Rachel for a wife. Rather, he cheats him into marrying Leah. Jacob is furious, and he ends up marrying Rachel as well. And, and in return for working another seven years, which he ends up doing. During that time, there's a birth war, which we saw last week, uh, between Leah, Rachel, uh, and their two servant girls, who are also Jacob's wives. I mean, this is like a Maury Povich episode here. But this is what really was going on here. And up to this point, 11 boys have been born and one, uh, one girl. And now that we've rehashed that completely functional and normal family environment, um, we pick up in chapter 30, verse 25. It says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, who will become a very important figure when we come back to Genesis later, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given to you. So at this point, it seems like Jacob truly believes that his service in Padam Aram is, is completed. And it's time for him to go home, albeit 
a number of years longer than he, he ever anticipated. He has done what his father, uh, his father Isaac requested. He's found himself not just a wife, but four wives and 11 children at this point. And now it's time to go home to the land that God had promised him in order to begin the process of creating the family that would end up being God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, Laban won't have any of this, and it certainly isn't for wholesome reasons. Look at verse 27. Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have, uh, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I'll give it. Now, don't let the sweet tone of Laban trick you here. Laban does not care about Jacob, and he certainly does not seem to care about Jacob's family. Manipulators are very good at making you feel like they are very nice people and that you are the wrong one for the plans that you have come up with. Laban only cares about Laban. He's made a fortune off of, Laban, uh, off of Jacob's work. And he isn't going to let that go. And Jacob here is on to his ruse, and he's not going to let Laban get away with it. And in response to Laban using divination, notice what Jacob says. Verse 29. You yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me or how you had little before I came and it's increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you and wherever I turned. But now... When shall I provide for my own household? That's a noble goal there. In other words, he's saying here, say, look, it's not like you needed a medium. You didn't need to go into divination to figure out that, that you've been blessed because of me. Just look at your herd. Look at your wallet. Look at your bank account. This is all because of me. And after a little back and forth, Jacob actually decides to stay because he and Laban make this, this really strange deal that seems to be all profit for Laban and all liability for Jacob. Jacob agrees to take all the sheep that are blemished, the ones that are spotted, and the ones that are striped, and he will be able to keep them. And Laban, in return, can keep all the really good sheep, the ones that aren't spotted, the ones that look really good, and the ones that are very strong and, and normal in terms of sheep. They're more valuable. The striped and the speckled are not only less valuable, but they're also rarer. And so maybe Jacob here would have done well if he would have read Trump's Art of the Deal here, because it certainly seems like he got the short end of the stick. I was once in a position like this. I worked as a retailer for a prominent cell phone company as a salesperson. And I had an LLC, and my company was hired out by this company uh, to, uh, to sell phones and plans and, and all that stuff that comes with it. And the agreement of the profit sharing was is that I would get 50% and they would get 50% of, of, the, of the sale, which uh, actually could amount to really good money if, uh, if you had a good day or a good month. Uh, but the fine print was that they would always be like Laban. They would always win. If anything got stolen from the store, 
I would have to pay the retail cost of it, not the cost of what they paid for it. A car charger, I'll be honest with you guys, a car charger is probably like five bucks to the company, but they charge 30 bucks. So if someone would come in and steal a car charger, they would take $30 out of my commission check. If a cell phone went missing, it would be the retail value of that. You think uh, they may pay 250 for a cell phone and they're charging $600 for it? Well, guess where that $600 comes from? It comes from uh, my commission check. It was totally unethical and unfair. And even though I was, I was not affected by it in any way, it was one of the many reasons that I chose to leave that particular business. So it's easy for me to sit here and sort of cheer Jacob on a bit. Because he doesn't, he doesn't hear getting mad at this crummy arrangement. He gets even. But not until Laban makes it more of a crooked deal. Look at verse 35. That day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and he put them in the charge of his sons, and he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. I mean, what a shyster Laban is. They agree to this deal that, that Jacob would get all these striped and spotted ones, but before Jacob can even get to the striped, and spotted, uh, the striped and spotted ones, Laban makes him take care of his sheep. And while he's not looking, Laban takes all of the sheep that should be Jacob's, takes them two or three days away, and gives them to his sons. So Laban's wrestling ring, named the deceiver, is well fitted for him. But he has met his match in Jacob. Verses 37 through 43 of chapter 3 lays out the details of how now Jacob manipulates the breeding process of the sheep. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't entirely understand what is happening here. Um, it seems like there is a mix of um, superstition and divination, you know, these sorts of weird things, as well as, uh, as genetics that are happening. But the result is the same. Jacob gets spotted and striped sheep that are healthy from Laban's flock. Laban gets sheep that are normal looking, but they're weak. And over the course of about six years, Jacob, who came to Padam Aram with absolutely nothing, is now very wealthy. His means of accumulating wealth has been by tricking Laban. In chapter 31, verses 1 through 2, the jig is now up and something's about to go down. Look at verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were, were saying, Jacob has taken all, of our father, uh, all, the, all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So Jacob here, uh, he senses that Laban is mad and it's not going to go well. When you have a master manipulator who borders on narcissism, this is a recipe for disaster here. So Jacob does what any person that's in a situation like this and is being threatened would do. He packs up his stuff and he gets out of Dodge. Verses 4 through 16, he pitches the ideas 
uh, the idea to his wives. He tells them how God visited him in a, a dream to get out of there, in which in verse uh, 3 and verse 15, that, that actually happens. Now in verse 15, it appears that they actually resent Laban, Rachel, and Leah. Why? Because he essentially sold them via human trafficking. The only reason that they have their husband is because they were sold for labor. And so they probably don't think Jacob's much of a picnic here either, but there's a vested interest, and that is children are involved here. Laban takes off for a couple days to shear his sheep, and they make the move to go out of here. And for our purposes, uh, uh, comes close to a climax here in verse 20. Look at verse 20. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now, in case you are still tracking with me, here's where it finally gets practical. When we don't give our lives, our situations, our cares, our burdens, our plans, when we don't give those things to the Lord, this is the logical end. A life on the run, either from God or from our problems or from our relationships or from our responsibilities or from our fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. Did God promise Jacob that he was now the bearer of Abraham's promise? Yes. Did he instruct Jacob to bring his family home? Yes. However, in both situations, Jacob decided that the promises of God were only going to come about if Jacob took matters into his own hands and made them happen in his way, and those ways were nefarious. See, the problem is, is that Jacob believed God in principle, but not in practice. And what does that lead him to? To running away from his father-in-law, who now has the legal authority to punish Jacob for running out on him. Laban's manipulation has put Jacob into a very, very bad spot here, and Jacob's deception has now put his family into a corner as well. And whether or not it is a little white lie or whether it is a, a, a blatant deception or denial, you're, uh, you are risking pain in your behavior. Maybe you're like Jacob. Maybe you're trusting God in, uh, in all uh, principles, but not practically. Practically, you're just running the show yourself. The best thing that you can do is to put your guns down and put up the white flag and surrender yourself to the God who has a better plan than anything that you could ever uh, conceive or imagine. For yourself. Whatever it is, we need to leave it at the feet of Jesus. But there's a second thing that we need to do. 
is that we need to leave our idols behind. We need to abandon our idols. You see, every single one of us does things in our lives to protect our future in case something happens. We have homeowner's insurance. We have car insurance. We have renter's insurance. We have savings accounts. We have retirement plans. We have stocks and bonds. We have 401ks. These things are are good things that we do in order to cover our bases if an emergency happens or if we plan one day down the road to, to, not, uh, to not work. You always want your favorite sports teams to have some insurance runs. Doesn't happen very often with the Vikings, but it's a very good thing when they do. And insurance, uh, insurance scores are basically when you have enough points that the opposite team can score a few times and it's really not gonna affect whether or not you uh, have a victory. And here there is a form of insurance that is not good and every one of us has bought spiritual insurance. These are things that we cling to in case God doesn't show up, in case God doesn't do what you want him to when you want him to. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's power. For some of us, it's popularity or alcohol or sex or relationships or, 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 or work or, or whatever it is. We bank on these things fulfilling us or giving us the ability to get what we want because we're either too lazy to wait on God or we just simply don't believe in the first place. One of Jacob's wives, Rachel, really liked to take out insurance policies. Last week, we talked about her trying the superstitious practice of using mandrakes to heal her of infertility, and it, 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 some, it was something that totally backfired on her. And now here in verse 19, when they are quickly packing up to get out, Moses tells us this. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now, why would she have done that? Sure, she could have done that to stick it to her old man and steal something of value to him, but I don't think that's what's happening here. She was taking an insurance policy. She was believing that if this God who Jacob follows can't get us to where we are going safely, then perhaps this God will. You know, just, just in case. She tried to steal a pagan blessing just as Jacob had stolen the blessing from his brother. How much of a reflection of Rachel is in us. We cling so tightly to those things that cannot save us. We have the grip of a bear on those things that we think 
will bring us safety and security and comfort and prosperity. And little do we remember that when we go into debt over these things, or when our family is broken and ruined because of our idols, or that we have wasted years on these things that will ultimately let us down. How much do we remember the fact that one day when we are laying six feet in the ground, that those things that we cling to will be heaped up in a garbage pit somewhere? We often don't think in those terms. True are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so just like the mandrakes here, Rachel's plan backfires Almost tragically. When Jacob, when one layman, I should say, ends up catching up with them because now he's running toward them, he is prevented by the Lord from harming them. But it's obvious that he's very concerned about something else, and that is the idol that she stole from his, among his property. And Jacob vows that whoever stole this idol, well, they're surely going to be put to death not even knowing that Rachel was the one who had stolen it. Laban goes tent by tent searching, and it, it's sort of an interesting drama because it, it's just leading up to, he goes every single tent, and finally the last tent is the one that is Rachel's tent. And he goes into the tent, and, and, uh, and it says in verse 34, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel sack uh, saddle and sat on them. Laban also uh, felt all about the tent but did not find him. And she said to her father, let my Lord not be angry uh, that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. What does that mean? It simply means that she told him that, it was, that she was menstruating and she couldn't get up. My guess is that Laban got out of there really quickly. And she got away with it. So chalk one up for Rachel. She got away with it for now. This household God, however, would eventually be given up. How? Through a call of the Lord to worship him alone. It wouldn't happen until chapter 35. When the Lord appeared to Jacob, this is what it says in chapter 35, verse 1 and following. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So this call to worship impacted Jacob so much that he instructs his family to get rid of every opposition to the Lord and to worship him alone. Continuing in verse 2, Jacob said to his household, undoubtedly the, of which Rachel was part of, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, 
and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I do know one thing. God will not compete with anything. You can rely on those imposter gods. You can have those those functional saviors, the things that you believe are going to get you through whatever, only for so long. But they will betray you. The only thing that is going to get you out is to see a greater glory. The goodness and the incomparable nature of God shown chiefly through the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. What are you trusting in that has lived perfectly sinlessly throughout his life? What are you trusting in that died on your behalf, that took the wrath of God that you rightly deserved for your capital offense, for your treason against the king of the universe? What are you trusting in that rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father who has authority over everyone and everything? What do you think that is going to get you through what you're facing? Let's get a better vision of glory. If you need accountability, let's get it. If you need help, let's do it. If you need community, let's get it. If you need treatment, let's get it done. If you need counseling, let's find it for you. If you need to throw your idol away, let's get the furnace blaring hot. Whatever it is that's hindering you from true life, let's redeem it or destroy it for the glory of God and for the good of your soul. Leave those idols behind and never look back. Third and finally, we need to live for the true God. Live for the true God. When Laban comes up empty-handed in this search for this household God, Jacob just unloads on him. Um, and Laban then seems to get his wits about him and realizes that he's, he's not going to win this one. And this battle is over. And so it would be better for him to make a treaty with Jacob. Or a covenant is more what they would call it here. And they do so in verses 42, uh, 43 through 52. They make this monument. They make this heap of stones, uh, which is to symbolize the covenant that they make together and draw out the terms. And the terms are are basically that they're going to leave each other alone. Laban's not going to jump over the heap to go and attack uh, Jacob and his family. Jacob is not going to jump over the heap and go and attack Laban. If Jacob abuses his wives, Laban's daughters, or if he marries other wives, God is the witness that will send justice down to Jacob. In verse 53, there's an interesting exchange on how they're going to ratify this this covenant. 
Laban says in verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And when we look at this more carefully and historically of what has happened here in Genesis this far, we see that what Laban is doing is he's actually appealing to a multiplicity of gods. He's not just appealing to Yahweh, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, the true God, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob only appeared first to Abraham. He never appeared to Nahor, his father. He never appeared to Abraham's grandfather. They were pagan Babylonians that were sun worshipers and moon worshipers. And it coupled with the fact that the, 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 the word God in Hebrew, it's Elohim, if you've ever heard it, is actually a plural word in the Hebrew. And so Laban wants Jacob to swear by these false gods. And Jacob doesn't. In verse 35, he swears by the one true and living God, the God of Abraham and of his father Isaac. He says this in, in, in the latter half of verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And it's interesting that Moses chose to use the, the, the word fear as a proper noun. Because what Moses was teaching the Israelites, and now us by extension, is that God is worthy of our reverence. God is worthy of us giving glory to. That he is holy, and that there is an element of terror associated with the Lord, and for that, he deserves to be rightly held in awesome wonder. This is the God who creates everyone and everything. This is the God who Hannah claims in 1 Samuel chapter 2, I believe it is, that he is the God who kills and makes alive. This is the God who made the universe by the words of his mouth. And this is the God who can make you into a new person with a word. This is the God who loves you in spite of the fact that you often try to get things done in your own power, in your own might, and maybe by your own scheming. This is the God who lived and died for you even though you have not trusted him completely. This is the God who will give you new life when you cast your treasures, your fears, your worries, your concerns, your, 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 your burdens, your, even your triumphs, indeed your entire being, into his gracious care. You see, the main event in Genesis chapter 30 through 31 may have pitted Jacob versus Laban. But perhaps the true main event is you with all of your idols and all of your spiritual weapons versus the God who fights not with drop kicks and body slams, 
but rather who wins by laying down his life so that we can win in him. He takes the loss for us so that we can experience true and lasting victory. So why not just throw in the towel today and entrust yourself to this God? Let's pray. Father, I, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that, Lord, you would change our hearts, that you would change our minds. Lord, that whatever it is that we are fighting for, whatever it is that we believe sustains us, that we would get rid of it or that we would redeem it, God. Lord, I pray that if there are any prideful hearts this morning that are hardening their hearts as the Israelites did at Meribah, God, that you would sweep those idols out from under them and that they would see that you are the true and living God. Lord, through your son Jesus, you, you sent him, not begrudgingly but willingly, to suffer and die so that we would not be enslaved to these idols that do absolutely nothing for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would cast those idols aside, would give you glory, would trust in Jesus, and would live all of our days in the joy that only comes from him. And it's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on the schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known.